I'm back. Did you miss me? Oh, boy. You know, a lot's happened since I was here three Sundays ago, I think. My Dodgers clinched the National League Championship, and I'm wearing my Lucky Dodgers shirt. Sadly, I wasn't wearing it last night. Oh, man. I went to bed early last night. And uh, anyway, the other big change in my life, and this is this is kind of exciting for me, um, is I've been working in a bike shop. So, uh, yeah, my sister-in-law said that's what's called a busman's holiday when you get to go to work and do what you love. Um, so, yeah, I've been working in a bike shop this week. Uh, Friday, I built six bikes, took them out of the box, built them up, put them on the floor. Um, I'm having a blast. Um, I get to work two days this next week. I don't know beyond that. My friend Rich owns the Covina Valley Cyclery, and... Um, I've been a friend of Rich's for 29 years. He's been, I've been buying bikes from him. He's been repairing my bikes for 29 years. And uh, it's just been a, a great friendship and an opportunity to kind of help him right now. He has Parkinson's disease really bad. If you think about my friend Rich, pray for him. And uh, so it's been a joy to kind of help him be in the bike shop. And we, it's called Covina Valley Cyclery. But those of us who have been around Rich all these years, uh, we just call it Rich's Store. Rich's shop. That's kind of natural, right? My friend Louie had a restaurant that he called Yahoo Chicken. And the Yahoo people came after him, threatened lawsuits because he was using their name. And so he was asking people, so what do I call it? I have to change the name. What should I call it? And everyone said to him, well, Louie, we all call it Louie's. We don't say we're going to Yahoo Chicken for dinner. We say we're going to Louie's. And so he changed the name to Louis Chicken, there you go. And so businesses are kind of like that, but churches shouldn't be that way, should they? Should this be known as Rick's Church? Should Church I Pastor be known as Roy's Church? You know, I remember years ago, things have changed a little bit in Southern California, but I had friends that would tell me, you know, we're going to Swindoll's Church this week. We're going to MacArthur's Church. This church is not Rick's church. It is God's church. It's Jesus' church. And I, I want you to think about that a little bit. Because like most churches, you have a history and you have a future, right? And right now we live in the present with a brand new pastor. And yeah, we got this little hiccup and Roy has to be here again. But, you know... This is an amazing church. I don't know if you know what an awesome church this is. This is a church that God has blessed in so many ways. Um, this is a church that's been blessed financially. Yeah, you're blessed with stable finances. You know, I talk to so many of my pastor friends, and they're stressed about finances in their church. It's a challenge. But you have a stable financial church. Yeah, you've been able to save some money because you haven't paid a pastor for a year and all that kind of stuff. But that's a blessing. God is blessing your church financially. He has blessed your church with facilities. How many square feet under a roof? 22,000 square feet under a roof. You've got all these classrooms. And God has given you the wisdom, the grace to utilize these facilities as much as possible. 
There's going to be two other congregations meeting here this morning. Am I right? Spanish-speaking church? Bueno, yeah. Um, there's a Korean church, kimchi. Um, you got uh, Urban Hope West is either launched, launching, or getting ready to launch. I don't know kind of where we are in that process. Uh, but you ought to be excited about that. Um, we got a new preschool, right, that's getting ready to kind of come in, and Don's working on facilities with them. Um, God has blessed this church. Um, and you think about not only the facilities, the finances, uh, when I think about this church and my interaction here in the last many weeks, God has blessed you with a family sense of being together as family. You care about each other. You like, I think you like each other, you know, if you don't love each other, at least if you can't like each other, at least love each other. Right. Um, but there's that, there's kind of that family thing. And I love that about this church. Um, and I, I look at the history of this church, and it's kind of fascinating to me. I don't know if you know that the average life cycle of a church is about 50, maybe 60 years, something like that. And this church got started in 1909. Several of you were probably here then, right? Um, Don was here. Um, I hope not, because we're the same age. Um, <clears throat> Don and I went to high school together, if you didn't know that, so we know we're both about the same age. Um, but you look back at the history of this church from 1909 to today, and if my math skills are good, which they're not, that's like 109 years. That's like twice what kind of the average American church experiences in its life cycle. And, and God has blessed this congregation. When the church relocated here from Compton to Norwalk in the early 50s, the population of Norwalk at that time was 8,000 people. Today it's over 107,000 people, the 14th largest city in L.A. County. So God has strategically placed this church with a future in a significant community, over 100,000 people with the history that you've had. And I was looking at the list of former pastors that have pastored here, and I thought, wow, there's some, there's some amazing names on that list. Paul Bauman is on that list. My friend Howard Mays is on that list. Howard's the son of my pastor as I was growing up as a boy, uh, Dr. Charles Mays. Um, Henry Rimple was pastor here. Um, who else is on that? Nick Kurtanik. Um, it's been an amazing thing. Did you know that the first pastor who pastored here was paid $15 and 48 cents a week? The second pastor wasn't paying attention because when he came to pastor, he was paid 15.48 a week, but they also made him the pastor and the janitor for the same price. <laughs> but I, I look back at the history of this church and all the th- ways that God has blessed this congregation. And someone has well said, I think, that the future is as bright, if I can get my thumb on the right button here, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And God has so many awesome promises, doesn't he? I mean, Joey was whipping off several of them this morning just off the top of his head without, I'm assuming they were kind of off the top of his head. You know, there's just so many of them, you can just kind of gather them up. But I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 16. One of the great promises that Jesus gives us about the church is captured for us in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is with his disciples, and 
they have this conversation in this in this paragraph in Matthew chapter 16 that that I think is very strategic for any church and for our church here in Norwalk as we look forward to the future. Got a brand new pastor coming on board with his wife Brenda. You've got an like, expectation of things that are going to happen with all the things that I just mentioned, the preschool coming in, Urban Hope West, and so on. Um, future is as bright as the promises of God. And Jesus' words in Matthew 16, uh, as I said, become very strategic, I think. So in verse 13, where I want to start reading, it says this Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, who's... Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I want you to notice the strategic things that Jesus tells us um, in these verses. Uh, The first thing I want you to notice that I think is pretty significant here is the setting of for this conversation is important. There's value to knowing Bible geography, I think. Anyone agree with that? Kind of know where you are geography-wise. Any of you go to school and just love geography? You know, I find so many people are kind of not only ignorant of the world we live in, but as Christians, we're oftentimes ignorant of Bible geography. And so I want you to think about this for a minute, because the Scripture says that this happened where? Caesarea Philippi. Well, where is Caesarea Philippi? And so what? Why does that matter? I'm glad you asked that question because that's why I'm here. Um, And so if you look at the map, there it is. Um, All the way up here in the north, you got the Dead Sea down here, right? You know your Bible geography, Dead Sea, the Jordan River, up here the the Sea of Galilee, and then still further north where that red arrow is, is Caesarea Philippi. And I want to make it a little bigger so you can kind of see it. Um, Caesarea Philippi is an interesting city. First of all, it's north of the Sea of Galilee. It's like 120 miles away from Jerusalem, which is kind of the heart and soul of the New Testament, the life of Christ world, right? And it's still another 35, 40 miles north of Galilee where Jesus grew up and a large part of his ministry was. Caesarea Philippi is Gentile territory. Caesarea Philippi is not not only Gentile territory. um, Caesarea Philippi is a city that has been marked throughout its history, that location, with not only Gentile world stuff, non-Christian, non-God-fearing stuff. But it was a part of the world, a part of the New Testament world, that was marked with not only idolatry, but paganism. Baal worship, if you're aware of your Old Testament history, was huge in this area. Baal worship, worship the god Baal, the gods Baal, 
which were fertility gods. So there was sensualness, sexuality, not only fertility of the earth, but human fertility. This was a huge part of pagan idolatry. It later became a center for the worship of the Greek god Pan, who was also a god of fertility. And so this whole part of the world, this whole part of the New Testament world is not only Gentile, but it's deeply, badly pagan idolatrous. Jesus takes his disciples there for this conversation. This would be like me gathering all of our pastors here in Southern California and going away for a retreat in Las Vegas. You know, We've got all these nice little Christian places we can go, and we go to Las Vegas. And so Jesus takes these guys to Caesarea Philippi. Pagan, idolatrous, ungodly. To have this conversation. I find that fascinating. I think there's a reason that Jesus did that. Uh, The second thing I want you to notice here um, in this passage is that the questions that Jesus asks... Are, are penetrating and strategic questions. Jesus asked his disciples two questions. What are they? Who do people say the Son of Man is, and who do you say that I am? The second question, when he says, who do you say that I am, the emphasis in that sentence is on the word you. Who do you say that I am? He's pointing a finger at him. And so the first question, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they've got a list. You see it there in in the text, right? Well, some think you might be John the Baptist. Where'd that idea come from? Well, that's what Herod thought. He thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back alive, right? Well, some say you're Elijah. Why do they think that? Well, Old Testament prophecy talks about Elijah coming. Um, Elijah was probably, of all the Old Testament prophets, the most highly regarded, highly respected. When you think of miracles in the Bible, when you think of miracles taking place, there's two significant eras of miracles. In the New Testament, we have the era of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, the major focus of miracles wraps around the life of Elijah. Some think you're Elijah. Some think maybe you're Jeremiah. You know, they've... Is there anything wrong with those ideas? Those are all good people, right? So what's wrong with those ideas? They're wrong. You know, and I read that list and I think, you know, it's kind of like the world you and I live in today. People have all these ideas about who Jesus was or is. And you'll hear things like, well, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was a moral example. He was a martyr. Are any of those things bad? But they're wrong. Thank you. They're wrong. They're wrong. I remember, and I, I may have shared this with you before, but I'll never forget a conversation I had with a woman one night. We were out doing some open-air preaching in uh, the city of Covina outside of a movie theater. And I engaged a woman in conversation that evening, and we talked about Jesus and who he was. And I'll never forget her response to me as we talked about Jesus. She said these words, Jesus is not enough. 
And she wanted to talk to me about Mary. What an awesome woman Mary was. And Jesus needed Mary. And Mary was an awesome woman. But Jesus is more than enough, right? Jesus is enough. And so the two questions, who do people say that I am? That doesn't really matter. The most important question in your life and my life is what? Who do you, who do I say he is? And so there's this this conversation. There's these questions. By the way, that's not a bad question to ask people. If you engage people in conversation and can direct that conversation to spiritual thought, you know, ask somebody, do you have any spiritual beliefs? What What do you believe about spirituality and spiritual life? And that's not a bad question to ask. Who do you think Jesus was? That's a great question to ask. That, that's a good question. So Jesus asked these strategic questions. And then we have Peter um, given his response, right? So the answer of Peter is fascinating for lots of reasons. And Jesus tells us at least a couple of those reasons. Uh, he tells Peter, this answer you just gave me, you didn't figure out on your own, Right? When Jesus, when Peter says to him that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, Jesus says, uh, you didn't figure this out on your own. Jesus is saying, you didn't, you know, get the help of other people to kind of collaborate and share wisdom and come up with this. How did Peter come to that conclusion? Jesus says what? My father revealed it to you. By the way, nobody comes to that conclusion on their own. Nobody comes to that conclusion because a group of their friends have come to that conclusion. Nobody figures that out on their own. The person that you're sharing the gospel with, your friend, your relative, the stranger under the bridge the kids in the Good News Club, wherever that connection is at, nobody comes to the conclusion Peter came to about Jesus on their own, right? Nobody. And so, for me, that kind of takes a little bit of pressure off me when I'm telling people about Jesus, right? Not my job to convince them. Not my job to persuade them. It's good to have some ammunition, have some information to share, a little apologetics. That's not bad. But my great apologetics and my great gospel presentation isn't going to bring anyone to the same place Peter came here. What's going to bring every single man, woman, boy, and girl to that same conclusion that Peter came to? It's God's work. God does that. One of my favorite passages on this topic is in Acts chapter 16, when a group of women are on the riverside outside the city of Philippi. And Paul goes to Philippi, and there's no synagogue because there's not enough men. Had to have ten men to have a synagogue, which is where he normally went. But there's a group of women down by the river praying, and he goes down there, and he meets a woman named Lydia. And the Scripture says in Acts chapter 16 that Lydia came to the exact same place that Peter has come here, but there's this little phrase that I've always loved. God opened Lydia's heart. No one comes to this conclusion. And you know, it's kind of fascinating when you think about Peter. 
If you remember in John chapter 1, when Andrew, Peter's brother, came to Peter after spending time with Jesus, he came to Peter, and do you remember what he said to Peter? He said two things. One, come and see. But he said what else? We have found who? The Messiah. And that was the first thing Andrew told Peter. We found the Messiah. Later in that chapter, Nathaniel encounters Jesus and, and kind of expresses similar words. And so you have the disciples in this process of two and a half years of learning, growing, struggling. Did they ever have doubts about who Jesus was? You bet. In fact, one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible. I had to preach that sermon next time I come here. I loved it, the story. But John the Baptist began to doubt about who Jesus was. Do you remember the story? And so John the Baptist is in prison. And what's going on out there? And so he gets some of his disciples to go to Jesus. And basically they ask Jesus, uh, are you the one we're expecting or do we wait for somebody else? John the Baptist had his doubts. But so here's these disciples coming along and, and here's Peter. And he says, he says so simply, um, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Didn't figure it out on his own. Wasn't that smart? But God opened his heart. And he responded this way. And so we have Peter's response. And then really the best part of this story is the response of Jesus to Peter. Because he tells Peter several important things. And I've already jumped ahead of myself and told you what some of that is. Um, trying to figure out what not to tell you here. So, I always have too much stuff to talk about. So the foundation of the church in this conversation with Peter, he says to Peter, Blessed are you, Peter Barjona. This has been revealed to you, my, my father. And then he says these words uh, to Peter. I also say to you, I'm in verse 18, if you still have your Bible open, which I hope you do. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter... Isn't that interesting? Now we're talking about you are the Messiah, and now Jesus turns around and says, you are Peter. I kind of find that kind of interesting. He says, you are Peter. Or Everyone knew that. That was no big deal. He says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And you've probably heard Jesus is doing a play on words here. The word Peter means rock. But there's two different words here in the original language. When Jesus uses the name Peter, it's the idea of a small stone, like maybe a pebble, a rock of some small size. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's now talking about a massive stone. It would be like standing at the base, standing in Yosemite at the base of El Capitan and picking up a rock off the ground and looking up at, you know, we've got quite a contrast here, right? And so Jesus is using these, this play on words in this contrast 
to suggest to Peter some significant things. And he says the foundation of the church is, when he says upon this rock, the foundation of the church is what? Well, let's figure this out. This is always the correct answer to every question, right? You can't go wrong. It's, the foundation of the church is Jesus. Now, some have suggested, well, Peter is the rock. Jesus was going to found the church on Peter. He was placing Peter in a, in a strategic position of, of authority, of power. Um, some have taken that so far as to say Peter was the first pope. There's some challenges with that because you always read the Bible in context, right? You know what context is? You read before and after, and that kind of helps you figure out what's going on. And if you read just a few verses later, guess what? This um, supposed authority on which Jesus built the church is now arguing with Jesus and telling Jesus he's wrong. And Jesus points at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Well, that's not quite my image of, you know, the person in final authority. Um, later, the disciples asked Jesus, so who's the greatest in the kingdom? And the correct answer to that, if Peter was elevated to this number one spot, the correct answer to that question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? The correct answer would have been Peter. But that's not what Jesus said. What did Jesus do? Put a little kid in their midst and said, humble yourself like a child. Later on, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus, put up to this by her two little boys. She comes to Jesus and asks him to put James and John on the right and the left hand in the kingdom. Well, James and John would have never done that if they'd understood Jesus to be pointing to someone being elevated to the top of the... So... I believe that what Jesus is telling Peter is the rock, this massive foundation upon which the church is going to be built, the assembly of called out ones who are the followers of Jesus. The foundation for all of this is, you say that word, it's a good word, Jesus. And the Apostle Paul talks later about the apostles and prophets are the, the foundation. And Jesus is what? He's called the chief cornerstone and so the whole foundation of everything that is happening as we go forward into the future with the kingdom of god with the church is the foundation for everything that happens is jesus it's not my church it's not rick's church it happens to be jesus church you know I've always struggled, and some people may not like this, but that's okay, because I'm going to leave and never come back. Um, but I have struggled for years with the term senior pastor, lead pastor. I always wanted people to understand, I am not the senior pastor of this church. Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. I just kind of get to come along and help out. I'm not the lead pastor. The leader of this church is Jesus. The senior pastor of this church is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the foundation. He says, on this rock I will build my church. And then the second thing in this passage that strikes me is this is the person who's going to build on this foundation is, all together now, Jesus. There you go. Who is it that's building the church? Jesus. And so the beauty of it is he includes 
you and me in what he's doing. We get to be a part. I'm not the senior pastor. I'm a pastor. Maybe I'm the pastor, the only one, but I'm not the senior pastor. That job, Jesus has that name tag, right? Senior pastor, Jesus. Um, He's the one building the church. You know, if I had a dime for every time my wife reminded me, it's not your church. (laughs) It's Jesus' church. I'd be stressed out over something here, that there, this challenge. It's not, it's not your church. She must have told me that, you know, at least a million times. Us pastors are slow learners. Um, but Jesus says, I'm going to build the church. It's not, it's not the pastor's job to build the church. It's not the pastor's job to guarantee that there's more people here next year than there are this year, right? Whose job is that? Jesus' job. But guess what? We get to be a part of that. We get to contribute to that. We get to be a part of moving forward and being a part of what God wants to do. That's just awesome to me. You know, I've been privileged to work alongside of some really awesome, awesome people. In my 47, uh, almost 48 years of pastoral ministry, I've been privileged to work alongside of some awesome people. And some of those people, names you would recognize, many you wouldn't. But the most significant person that I've been privileged to work alongside of, and you have too, is Jesus. He's the one responsible for building his church. And uh, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that all the time. Um, Let's keep going. The certainty of the church being built. It's going to happen. It's a certainty. It's not maybe. It's definitely going to happen. And it all depends on Jesus. Isn't that cool? Doesn't depend on me. Doesn't depend on Rick. Doesn't depend on the elders of the church. It depends on Jesus. And so us pastors ought to just go, that's great news. Doesn't depend on me. It just doesn't. And I love the fact that Jesus says, I will build my church. He is bringing together his church, his called out ones, people that are coming to faith, people that are growing together. And you and I get to be a part of that. We're privileged to be a part of that. And as you move forward to the future... And this certainty of what um, Jesus is doing. There's a survey that was done a couple of years ago that um, had predictions for the American church that I find kind of fascinating. And I thought maybe I'd just share them quickly with you this morning. The first one is this. Um, the future, and this has been happening already, but when, it's, when I say increased church acquisitions... More and more of the smaller churches in our country are being, uh, almost said gobbled up, I guess that's an okay word, Um, but they're being, they're they're moving under the umbrella, becoming satellites of a larger church. Um, I, I know of some of churches in our fellowship of churches, as well as outside, that have had very, very strategic ministries and coming alongside of small, struggling churches that had gotten down to 12, 15 people in attendance and were struggling financially, couldn't pay a pastor, all those things. And they 
slid underneath the umbrella of a larger church that provided oversight and wisdom, pastoral leadership. Um, that's happening more and more and more. Why does that happen? It happens for a lot of reasons, but one of the challenges is when a church gets to the place where it's no longer financially viable, it can no longer sustain itself financially, what does it do? It does exactly that. And that's why I started off by saying, you know, God has blessed this church with stability. He has blessed this church in so many ways. But that's one of the things that's happening around our country with, with churches. Another thing that's happening is that we are seeing churches growing, increasing in numbers. But the increase in numbers is not because more people are coming to faith. It's why people are moving from this church to that church. Because we have become a culture of consumers who go to church to consume. My friend Paul Hoffman says, um, we no longer are concerned about service. We are concerned about serve us. And that is happening to such an extreme in our country that so many people choose a church based on what services can you provide for me? In fact, a recent survey was done of church members asking them what they believed the purpose of the church was. Why does the local church exist? Fewer than, let me say it the other way around, more than 70% of people who answered that question said that the purpose of the church was to meet the needs of me and my family. Now, should churches be concerned about kind of meeting the needs of families and people in their lives? Is that a valuable thing? But we don't exist for us. We exist for those that aren't here yet. We exist for those that have yet to come to faith. We're here to be witnesses and to witness, to witness with our lives and our lips. To represent Jesus in the world he's placed us in. And whether you're working in a bike shop, yes, or, you know, whatever you do, you're there representing Jesus to be a witness for him. The church does not exist so that, you know, I can be, be better, feel better, you know, hopefully I get, you know, but we're here for them out there. That's why we exist, right? Somebody say amen besides Tim. Um, oh, third thing. Going to be more and more giant churches. Why? Because that's where you go when you consume. You go where all the services are. That's why stores like Walmart, Target, you know, those little mom and pop grocery stores. You ever pop into one of those little mom and pop grocery stores and, and you want to buy a certain uh, brand of certain, you know, vegetable or whatever. And, you know, they don't have that. Why not? You know, they, they can't afford to have all 30 brands of green beans. They just can't do that. But Target can. Walmart can. And the same thing is true. We're going to have more and more of the mega churches. But again, those churches are going to grow. They're going to increase. They're going to expand. Not because more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus, but because more and more people are moving from the smaller church to the bigger church to consume the services. Because, of course, that's why the church is there, to serve us, not to provide service. A fourth thing that's happening and going to happen more and more, um, and I find this kind of fascinating, uh, the authorities, the experts uh, t 
tell us that greater number of churches are going to stop experimenting with the, the traditional service, the contemporary service, and what I call the geezer service. Um, I kind of like the geezer service, by the way. I, I, I go to one of those every now and again. It's, it's kind of fun to sing the old hymns and have a choir and an orchestra and all, you know, all that old geezer stuff that those old people... Yeah, I'm, old. Um, but there's more and more churches that are do, moving to a unified style where they're doing some of the old hymns, they're doing some of the new stuff, and they're kind of, uh, more and more churches are doing that instead of the, the separate services. Um, I find this kind of fascinating as we look to the future is, is an increased level of expectation of church membership. That churches are more and more going to be expecting more of people. It's not just show up on Sunday for an hour and split and come back next Sunday for an hour. But where can you contribute? Where can you help? Where can you be a part? Um, I had an extended conversation with a friend of mine a month or so ago. And he was whining, complaining. Is there a more positive word to use than that? Um, he was challenged in his life with the fact that the new pastor in the church was proposing a membership contract where you would sign a contract agreeing to be a member of the church, and in that contract you would agree to do certain things. That bothered him a lot. And I just wanted to say, well, what's in the contract you don't like? You don't like that uh, they want you to agree that you're going to support the church financially? Do you disagree with that? Do you disagree with the fact that they want you to be involved in ministry and service somewhere? Is there something wrong with that? Do you disagree with the fact that they w- would like you to agree to be a part of a small group and be a part in ministry with others? And ch- you know, what, what is it in the contract you don't like? I just don't like signing my name in a contract. Well, without a contract, we ought to all be willing to do those things, right? Uh, if, if this is a family, if we're in this together, if we're in this ministry with Jesus accomplishing his goals and purposes, then it kind of logically follows that there's going to be some cost to it. My time, my talent, my treasure, right? Right? Oh, good. Oh, maybe nervous for a minute. Um, there's going to be an increased challenge for churches to build and to acquire land. Why is that? Lots of reasons. The first reason is what? Money. The second reason is governments don't want churches taking up land in their cities. Why not? No tax dollars from churches. They're nonprofit organizations. So my friend Chris, that pastors the Grace Church of Laverne, has been meeting in the gymnasium at the Lutheran High School for 20 plus years. And when they've tried to find property in the city of Laverne that they could rent, empty places that are available, the city would not allow them to do that. Why not? They want retail businesses in there that are producing tax dollars. Guess what? You guys already have land and buildings. Is that a blessing or what? Amen. And so I'm circling back to where I started. God has blessed this church. And as you move forward into the future, he has a plan, and his plan in these words is, I will build my church. He's going to do it, and we get to be a part of that. And so what I want you to consider this morning is, what is your part going forward? What is your part? You have expectations of your pastor. You all do. I know that. I've experienced that for 47 years. You all have expectations of Rick. 
But since he's not here, let me tell you some things that he might be expecting from you. Is that fair? Um, of course, I've talked about this before. I'll circle back again. Um, pray for your church. Pray often for your church. Pray for your pastor. Pray for its leaders. Ask Rick and Brenda, how can I pray for you? And have a piece of paper and a pen in your hand and write it down. I was at a wedding three weeks ago. And after I officiated the wedding ceremony and everything was all done and people were scattering for the reception time and so on, this older gentleman, older than me, that makes him an older gentleman, um, <clears throat> he motioned me over and, and he went like this and stuck out his hand and took my hand and I tried to pull away. You know, you shake hands and then you pull away. And I, he wouldn't let me go. And, and then he pulls me in. It's like, what is going on? This guy is weird. He says, he says, I'd like to pray for you. Can I do that? It's a total stranger. Related to the couple that got married, like an uncle or I don't know. But he pulls me in like that and says, I'd like to pray for you. And he prayed for me. That was an amazing experience. Do you know the last time I had someone do that? Never. Now, I've had people pray for me and pray with me, but to pull me in and pray. So pray for Rick. Pray for your leaders. Ask them how you can pray for them. Write it down. But if you ever had this experience, you'd go up to someone and say, Don, how can I pray for you? And Don says, well, you know, I pulled my hamstring this week. I was pulling that heavy desk in there. And, uh, man, it's really, he says, and I said, well, I'll pray for you, Don. Well, that's sort of encouraging, right? But what if while he's telling me this, I say, well, let me pray for you right now, Don, and I pray for him. You could do that with your pastor. You'd probably freak him out because I'd be willing to bet money. That's not happened a whole lot of times with members of a church doing that. Pray. That's like number one on the list, right? Um, How about this one? This is a little tougher. Invite one person to church every week. Well, you know, maybe that's too big of a goal for you. How about invite one person every month? Could you do that? Statistics tell us that 47% of people who visit a church for the first time come because a friend or a relative invited them. Advertising, which is good and has value, generally, at least this is what the statistics and authorities tell me, Advertising affects and impacts 6% of people that will walk through the door the first time. 6%. You know, it's a lot more cost effective to have 75 or 80 people out there inviting someone to come to church than it is to take out an ad in the newspaper or put banners up or whatever. you got a nice marquee board out here. You could put some clever, witty sayings out there and kind of catch people's eyes. But the most important thing is for you to do what? Invite people to come to church. Invite people to come to church. Okay, welcome people when they come. You know, when new people walk in the door, they need to be welcomed. They need to be greeted. One of the things that I've always tried to do is I'll meet someone and say, Hey, my name's Roy. What's your name? Don. I said, Don, so good to have you this morning. Have you met my friend Andrea? And I'll introduce Don to somebody else and I'll walk away. Um, but welcome people. When I went to the church in, in Alta Loma, one of the men in our church, Sandy Fairchild, 
was just amazing. Because he would welcome new people. He would greet new people. Um, he, he had conversations. He just was kind of the welcoming person. I mean, six to eight years after he had passed away, people would still say, do you remember when Sandy was here? Every church needs a Sandy, or three or four or five or six. Make people feel welcome when they come in the door. It's so easy. We get together. We know each other. We talk to each other. And the new guy walks in the door. Um, Welcome those people. Greet them. You know, you might even go beyond that greeting on Sunday morning and say to that new person, what are you doing for lunch after church? You know, a couple of us are getting together. We always go out for lunch after church. Why don't you come along with us? I'll buy your lunch. My aunt, Aunt Dorothy, was one of the most amazing women I've ever known. She took people home from church every single Sunday. She had something cooking at home in the crock pot or the stove or something. I don't cook, I eat, so I don't know what she did. But she invited people home after church every single Sunday. She had an amazing ministry in that church. Okay, pray, invite, welcome, extend yourself, and then support, serve. Time, talent, treasure. You know, we just recognized Robin for her ministry with children. What an asset. Um, These two guys in the back, uh, Dave and Habib, you know, these guys are here every single Sunday when I come. Dave takes my flash drive, loads it up, and Habib gets me all squared away with this stuff so you can... You know, faithful, faithful servants. Your ushers, your elders... um, But there's always opportunity for others to serve. It's all about service. We serve because of Jesus. We just sang about our love for him. We serve because of Jesus. I don't come to be served. I come to serve. Boy, I read that somewhere. Where did I read that? I came not to serve, but to be served. Was that? Who said that? Jesus. Let's make that the motto of our lives as well as we go forward into the future. Lord, do that in each of our lives as we go forward confident of your promise that you will build your church. Thank you for the privilege, the joy, the honor of of just being a small part of that, being a part of uh, your ministry team, uh, building your church, reaching a lost, needy world with the gospel. Do that as we go into the future is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.